Good news. Some good news that happened this week. Uh, some of y'all know that they, Stratford Schools announced a time for graduation, and so that is exciting. I'm excited for our seniors and, and uh, the other activities that were put on the calendar. It was nice to see things being put on the calendar. <laughs> so that was good to see, and I know a lot of our families are excited for that and be able to celebrate uh, with their students that are uh, in their accomplishments. And, but with graduation in mind, I <clears throat> began thinking about events and stuff that you know, I've been to that just kind of went on and on and on. Uh, you know, the longest recorded graduation in history happened at Harvard University, and it was over six hours long. <laughs> that's, oh, that's gross. Um, and it was six hours because they actually did it in two different languages back to back. And so just if they did one language, that would have been three hours, which still seems kind of long for me, but uh, maybe not. I know some universities... Uh, do graduations by schools like school of education and engineering or nursing and and they walk across the platform there are some universities so large that they just announce the school and that school stands up where they are and they don't walk across the platform but i'm sure you've been to things in your life that an event or something that just seems like it's going on and on and on i hope you don't feel that way about church i hope you don't feel that way about my preaching um, if you do uh, maybe we should pray together <laughs> figure something out maybe you have some pointers for me but maybe in those times where you've been in an event it just goes on and on you kind of <clears throat> feel like you're in that movie ferris bueller with the teacher bueller 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 and it just never gets to the point um, i felt that way in youth ministry when it came to lock-ins Always excited when lock-ins would start, but then you hit like that wall about three or four in the morning where you're you're sure that the students have become possessed by something, and so the only way to knock that out of them was to have dodgeball with the adults versus the students, and you just kind of knock whatever's going out. But um, those things that just seem to go on, I, I say that and lead that up to where we're going to be this morning. Not that this message I feel is going to be a long, dull message. I, I, I'm excited about what we're going to be looking at this morning, but. We are looking at some passages of scripture which can seem tedious at times. We're going to be looking at the genealogies of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you just want to kind of find your spots in each Gospel, in Matthew it's chapter 1, and in Luke it's chapter 3 beginning in verse 23. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke are the only Gospels which have a genealogy concerning Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that these are passages of Scripture that are probably the most sped-read passages of Scripture in the New Testament, maybe in Scripture, if you, uh, or maybe you read it like Leviticus and Numbers in the latter part of Exodus. But we're going to walk through the genealogies and kind of do an overview of them and see what God wants us to learn from these things. As we begin, I want to read this passage of Scripture from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. It says, All Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God. All of it is spoken by God, including the genealogies and those lists of names. And all Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training of righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, my confession is I was tempted to skip over the genealogies, though they are part of the story of Jesus. Um, but God kept drawing me back to them to spend time with them and not to uh, kind of overlook them that we may be tempted to do at times. To understand the genealogies, we have to begin by understanding the original audience of each gospel. And so for Matthew's gospel, Matthew was led by the Spirit 
to write primarily to a Jewish audience. And so when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to find a lot of prophecies, things from the Old Testament which are pointing to Jesus and how he fulfilled those things. It was to show that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the one who fulfilled all the law and the prophecies that are laid out in what we call the Old Testament. Now Luke is not writing to a Jewish audience. He doesn't skip out on the prophecies, but he doesn't emphasize them in the same way that Matthew does. Luke was led by the Holy Spirit to write to a primarily Gentile audience. And we know this from the opening of Luke where he mentions a man by the name of Theophilus, who is a Roman name and is probably a Roman governor or authority figure in Rome. Luke's intention is to show that Jesus was not only the Jewish Messiah, but he was the Savior of the world. And Matthew does this too, but he does it in a different way. Luke is showing that Jesus came to serve all of mankind through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so to help us understand like the different audiences that each gospel is pointing to, I think it, we, we put in the aspect of our conversations with people. For example, we talk to our spouses differently than we'll talk to other people in our life. I'll talk to my wife even differently than I talk to my own kids. We have different conversations, different things we talk about. And if you're a parent, you probably had that conversation with your child. Uh, mommy and daddy are talking right now as your child tries to get into that conversation. But we have different uh, tones of voice. We have different uh, body language and mannerisms and, and ways we, we relay that message with different people. I and mean, we're familiar with that. We, we become able to show maybe our, our frustrations easier with those who are closest to us. We convey messages differently with different audiences that we're around. With our coworkers and peers, we talk differently than we do with our family and our spouse and our loved ones. This is because each group has a different way of understanding the message that we're trying to convey to them. And so we're familiar with the idea of directional audience when we're having conversation. The Gospels all have a directional audience, and so they have a, a, an audience in mind that they're writing to, and the Holy Spirit is leading the writers to write out. Well, looking at the two genealogies, again, in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, we're going to begin by looking at some of the similarities. And there's actually fewer similarities than there are differences. So we're going to start with similarities. First, in both genealogies, they point to Jesus. We should know that. But they point to Jesus through his family line and where he came from. Both genealogies are, have similar names in them, like Joseph and Zerubbabel and David and Isaac and Abraham. The greatest similarity between the genealogy found in Matthew and the genealogy found in Luke is the line connection of Abraham to David or David to Abraham. Matthew does it in verses 2 through 6. Luke does it in verses 31 through 34. But when it comes to differences, there are more differences in these genealogies than there are similarities. First, Matthew's gene genealogy, because of his audience, again, the Jewish people, he brings out three uh, historical time periods within the Jewish people. He was led to show that this is how God has been working. Matthew reveals that in the midst of the good and, and despite the bad, God's hand was still working out his plan of salvation and his covenant, his promises. It shows of God's sovereignty and his providence just in the genealogies. Matthew tracks Jesus' family line from Abraham and works its way to Jesus. Luke does the opposite. Luke goes from uh, Jesus and works backwards to Adam. What Luke is trying to do is to show from going back to Adam is that Jesus is from all and therefore came for all. 
Now, the biggest difference between the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, and you can read through both of them later this afternoon if you like, is how they deal with names. I mean, it's an obvious difference. There are different names in the, in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 and different names in the genealogy of Luke chapter 3. Now, some of the names are actually aliases to those people. So they're mentioning the same people just by a different name or another name they were known by. But some of the names have to be dealt with before we dive into what God wants us to take from this that profits us. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. But when we go to Luke's gospel, Luke says, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. First off, the as was supposed is Luke's way of saying that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. But here's the thing. In Matthew's genealogy, Jacob is the father of Joseph. In Luke's genealogy, there's someone named Heli who's the father of Joseph. So who is this Heli? Because that's a pretty big difference, and we're supposed to be able to trust this stuff. Well, to help, re to help us reconcile the difference of Matthew and Luke, there are several schools of thoughts uh, when it comes to these names. First, Luke is not as concerned as Matthew in tracing Jesus' family line through David, though he does mention David and deals with that. Luke is not as concerned to show that Jesus came and fulfilled the Davidic covenant, which we're going to deal with in a second. Luke is wanting to show how Jesus came for all, not just the Jewish audience or the Jewish people, but he came to save all, and he does this through the genealogy and through the prophecies to which Jesus fulfilled. Now, the one line of thought is that Luke is using the law of the levirate marriage. There was a law which stated when a husband died, his brother would adopt his wife and their kids. That is, if the kids were not of adult age and, and could provide for the family. But he would adopt them as his own and take them in. And so we see this in Genesis when uh, Judah was giving his sons to Tamar, and it led to that uh, strange little story there. In this case, Heli, who's mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, would have been Jacob's brother, who's mentioned as the father of Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew. And he therefore, by this law, became the legal father of Joseph through the Leverate marriage law. We could be understood this way, not that Jacob adopted Joseph, because Matthew's intention is to show the biological father and to show the, the, uh, the dominant male figure in the family. So it would make sense that Healy adopted Joseph, and Jacob must have died at some point in time when Joseph uh, was a child. We can reconcile this because we don't know much about Joseph's family, and there's not a whole lot in Scripture concerning Joseph. Now, there's another train of thought, and in that Luke is actually tracing Jesus' family line through the family of Mary. Therefore, Matthew is tracing it through Joseph, and Mary is, is omitted in Luke's, but Luke is tracing it through Mary's family line, which would be... a, a a normal practice to omit the women. Another big difference comes in the Gospel of Matthew and his genealogy. Matthew does mention Mary by name, but he also mentions four other women that we find in Scripture, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah. And the reason this is significant because for a Jewish genealogy, women were almost never placed into the family line. They were just assumed to be there. But these women in Matthew's genealogy were not Israelites by birth. And you can read of them throughout the scripture. Uh, it's Matthew's subtle way of saying what Luke does in his gospel. That Jesus came for all and that all people can be adopted into the covenant family of God. 
all women except Mary in Matthew's genealogy were Israelite. All the others came from outside and were adopted in. Now with this understanding, the term covenant is something that we're going to have to deal with in understanding the significance of the genealogy. Now with my study with Wednesday Night Live and doing the overview of the Old Testament, covenant just jumps out every time I read the Bible now. I just see God's covenant. It, it speaks of God's promises, things that God has spoken that will come to fruition. And, and I see the significance of covenants throughout Matthew and Luke's genealogy. Now, the word covenant is defined by the Holman Bible Dictionary as an oath-bound promise whereby one party solemnly pledges to bless or serve another party in some specified way, defining God's relationship to man in all ages. And it was designed to bring fallen human beings into an intimate, personal relationship with God. And I think we understand covenants in the terms of a marriage vow or when we sign a, a loan for a house with a bank. With a marriage vow, we're giving promises to our spouse, and those promises are before God, before the witnesses at the ceremony, and before our future spouse. When it comes to a house loan contract, we are signing a contract. We are promising the bank that we are going to meet our financial obligations of the loan. And so when we don't fulfill these promises, even in a marriage or the housing loan, we see the consequences. Now, within the genealogy, here's what we find. We find three genealogies or three covenants fulfilled, one underlining covenant fulfilled, and one new covenant established. A covenant is a promise. So in all the genealogy of Matthew and Luke, when we put them together, we find five covenants which help us understand the story of Jesus in our life and why these are profitable for us. The first covenant that we become aware of actually comes out of Luke's gospel. Luke traces Jesus' family tree back to Adam. He works backwards from Jesus to Adam. And he refers to Adam as the son of Adam, verse 38 in chapter 3, the son of God. Don't get caught up on that phrase, the son of God. It's not referring to Adam the same way that we refer to Jesus as the son of God. Luke is just pointing out that Adam was created by God in his image and in his likeness, which we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. But he would not be the complete son of God, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus would be in the image and likeness of God, but he would also be of the same nature of God. He would be the word that became flesh and dwelt among us that we looked at in the Gospel of John. In pointing to Adam, Luke is pointing to one of the first covenants in Scripture known as the Noahic Covenant. It's spelled Noah, I-C, Covenant. This is the first covenant in Scripture that we encounter that was given after the flood to Noah. It was a covenant which required nothing on the part of Noah or his descendants, but was a statement given by God. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, the reason man's heart was evil and the reason the flood had to come was because of sin and disobedience, which Adam committed in Genesis chapter 3. So when we come back to Adam, we see, okay, this is when sin started. This is why Jesus came. Now, within the covenant, God promises Noah he would never bring judgment upon the earth through a flood again, even though God was fully aware that man's heart was evil from his youth because of the sin of Adam. God also promised that there would always be seasons and days and nights. They would never stop existing. 
So the purpose of the flood was to punish sin because it had, the earth had grown increasingly wicked. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. So if we under wonder, ever wonder how our sin makes God feel, Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 lets us know. It causes God to have regret. And, and that it's not like a repentance. It, 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 like understanding it breaks the heart of God. But the flood not only brought punishment for sin, it brought restoration for creation. And this is what Jesus Christ did. Jesus took our punishment on the cross through his atoning sacrificial death to bring restoration to God's creation, in particular to us in our relationship with God. We can be reconciled back into a relationship with God, which was broken when sin came into the earth through Adam. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, what? Creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. By, the wash, by being washed by the blood of the Lamb, by our sins being flooded over by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our faith in Him alone, we have been restored to the image to which we were created for. More importantly, we have been restored to the relationship to which we were created for. The second covenant we see within these genealogies is the Abrahamic covenant. Again, Abraham, I see, covenant. Abrahamic covenant. This covenant would also take place in Genesis. It begins in Genesis chapter 12 and then is reemphasized in Genesis chapter 17. The covenant begins in Genesis 12 where God calls Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed, or in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The covenant was established, reestablished in Genesis chapter 17 through the act of circumcision and the promise I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. The covenant not only establishes a blessing rather than a curse, but you hear that all families, not just the Jewish people, not just the descendants of Abraham, would be able to fall under this covenant or this promise. And this, as we mentioned, is Luke's intention in his genealogy. Matthew's emphasis on the covenant is seen through the genealogy tracing all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. But it is through Jesus Christ and the story of Jesus that now we all can become blessed by God just as Abraham was. Just as Abraham left his family and home, so Jesus left his home. He left his throne. And then through this covenant, Abraham was going to be a blessing to all people to which was fulfilled in Jesus Christ that we can receive the full blessing of God found only in our Savior. The third covenant we see fulfilled in the genealogies is what is known as the Davidic covenant, David, I see, covenant, which both genealogies capture. Both of them point to David. And the Davidic covenant was given in 2 Samuel and then reemphasized in 1 Chronicles. It stated that a descendant from David's household would always remain on the throne. Both Luke and Matthew in their genealogy point to this covenant being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the eternal king. Ultimately, it spoke of a, the child of promise who is going to be born, as Matthew puts it in verse 1, as the son of David, the son of Abraham. The covenant established the members of the Davidic dynasty were the legitimate instruments through which God's rule on earth was administered. 
Oddly enough, if you read about these covenants in 2 Samuel or 1 Chronicles, you see when God spoke this promise, this covenant to David, he was fully aware that David's descendants would not honor their part of the deal in the covenant. He was aware that they would fall away from him and they would sin. This is what we see unravel in 1 2 Kings and 1 2 Chronicles. So God was pointing to not someone initially from David's descendants, but one who would come and then sit on the throne of David forever. And this is Jesus. This is what the story of Jesus lets us know. The covenant also reminds us that God was fully aware of man's sins, and yet God did continue to deliver his promises. So our sins do not nullify the word or promises of God, which Paul highlights in Romans chapter 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In Jesus, and in the story of Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God in full and the establishment of God's promise given to his servant David thousands of years before Jesus would even be born. And then there's an underlining covenant which is fulfilled through these genealogies. Though his name is never mentioned in each genealogy, and that name is Moses. And the reason Moses isn't mentioned is because Moses was a Levite. Jesus would come from the tribe of Judah. But when we read through the genealogies, we see this underlining covenant that was given to Moses in what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. And it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, both in Matthew and Luke's genealogy. The Mosaic Covenant was given to God's people in the book of Exodus. It called for total allegiance for God on behalf of his people, and their allegiance would be shown by their obedience to the law or word of God. So if you read through the Old Testament, you see this is the biggest stumbling block for God's people in the Old Testament. They continue to be disobedient to the law and the covenant to which God established, known as the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant was also a reminder of the deliverance of God's people from bondage and was emphasized through the feast known as the Passover. Maybe you're getting the links here now. Okay, so Jesus fulfilled all of the law and all of the prophecies. He filled all of the Mosaic Covenant. He was fully obedient to the law of God. He completely fulfilled the law. This is why when we get to the crucifixion, when Jesus is able to say, it is finished, that's because he fulfilled the law of God. He refilled our legal requirements, which we could not. When Jesus was crucified, it was at the time, get this, at the Jewish Passover, which the Mosaic Covenant was referring to, back to. It symbolized a new era of deliverance was beginning. God isn't just going to deliver us from a physical bondage, but something even more detrimental from a sinful bondage, which is found in Jesus Christ. Through these genealogies and the fulfillment of the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the Mosaic Covenants, Jesus ushered in a new covenant in the covenant of redemption found in and by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it's through this covenant and by faith in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection, we now stand and are fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ who fulfilled all the law and all its legal demands. And now we stand in the covenant of redemption and in the covenant of grace. And it's not that grace can't be found in the Old Testament when these covenants were originally given. The Old Testament is full of God's grace. But now in Christ, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. If you remember that a couple of weeks ago from the Gospel of John. See, covenants are promises of God. And God has been speaking his promises before the beginning of time 
through the story of Jesus. And the beauty of both genealogies is they reveal not only God's promises, but how God remained faithful to his promises despite his people's unfaithfulness. For us in Jesus Christ, if we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we now stand and are found in the promises of God, in God's covenant. And we know the greatest covenant, the greatest promise is yet to come when Jesus Christ is going to return for all those who called upon his name and to take us home into eternal glory. So why is it so important to know about this in the genealogies? And why is it so important to talk about covenant? Because we can trust God's word. No matter what happens in our life, no matter what changes from one day to the next or one week to the next, no matter what one person says that it differs from another person, we can always turn to the word of God and know that God's word is always true. It will always be a rock in this world to which we can stand. When nothing else seems to make sense, when nothing else seems to be going the way we think it should go, we turn to God's word and God's word will always be true. It's his promise. It's his covenant. The Bible says every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what battles you're facing, no matter what sin you maybe continue to stumble in, God and his word will always be something that we can turn to for comfort, for peace, for joy, for strength, and for the ability to persevere. The promises of God were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is now our salvation. And now we can trust God in all of his words, even the genealogies, just as Jesus did. I may not know what tomorrow may bring. I may not know what next week may bring. But I know who does. And his word will lead me to that place. The Bible says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But maybe you're listening right now and you have not accepted God's covenant, his promises that he has been speaking from eternity. See, the thing about covenants in Scripture is they have to be sealed with an oath. The Noahic covenant was the only covenant in Scripture that was not sealed with an oath. It was something that God simply stated what he would not do. It required nothing on the part of Noah. But if you look at all the other covenants, Abraham was required to leave his family. He was required to do a physical act of faith and to trust God in his word. Moses and David both were required to be obedient. These were their seals within the covenants that God spoke over them, the promises. And so for you to be in the new covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace, the covenant of salvation, it requires a seal of confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins and the promise of eternal life. In the book of Ephesians, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth. What's the word of truth? It's the gospel of your salvation. It's the word of God. And you believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see that? That's covenant talk. That's promises. You were sealed because of your confession, because you, you've made that oath. You were sealed into the covenant and you were promised the inheritance. The only way to be sealed and to be guaranteed and to be in the covenant is to be found in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, God has already sealed the means for this to happen. God has already spoken his promises. Now all is required of us is that we seal the deal with God. How do you do that? 
You have to admit to God that you're a sinner. There are things in your life that you know you shouldn't do, things you wrestle with that you're not proud of. That's what the Bible defines as sin. And so you admit to God, God, I am a sinner. And then you believe God's word that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sins, and he did. And he rose again that you and I can be completely forgiven be promised eternal life. And the Bible says, when I believe that in my heart, that God loves me that much, and then I confess it with my mouth, I will be saved. If you're listening and that's you, and you need to be in God's promise, I just want to lead you through a prayer. You just want to pray these words, not to me, not to your screen, but to God. To God, I am a sinner. I believe your son, Jesus, died for my sins and rose again. And I am confessing him now my Lord and Savior. If you prayed that simple prayer, I'm going to ask you to reach out to me. It's Pastor Mike at HarvestHill.org. I'm excited for you. The heavens erupted for you. But what's next? What's next in this relationship you've now begun with God? I'd love to help you in that. If you're listening, you've already made that commitment. You're already in the covenant of God. Know this. We are the covenantal family of God. We are the promises of God living in us and out of us that we take into this world. And none of those promises will ever fade. Nothing in this world can ever take that away. Nothing has the power to overthrow God's word and his promise over your life. I hope you find peace in that. I hope you're doing well. I miss you all terribly. I can't wait to see you and hopefully hug, <laughs> maybe air hug. Um, but God bless. If you need anything, please reach out and we will just continue praying and continue seeking after him. Let's finish our time in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this day, for loving us. Thank you for your promises, which are always true. Thank you for your word, which you've given us to guide and lead us closer to you, that we may be ready for everything you've prepared for us to do for your glory. Father, take your word, and Lord, let your spirit just uh, penetrate our hearts. Father, to relieve our worries and concerns, knowing that we are standing in the promises of God. And I thank you so much everything you've done for us. I thank you for those who are going to hear this and accept you as your Lord and Savior for the first time. I thank you for the words of peace that you've poured over my life simply by looking at these genealogies. You are good. We love you. We praise your name. Amen. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. God bless, guys. <laughs>